Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. Dr. Judith Devlin is Senior Lecturer in the School of History at University College Dublin. Her research focuses on Soviet and post-Soviet Russia, and her publications include Slavophiles and Commissars, Enemies of Democracy in Modern Russia, and The Rise of the Russian Democrats, Causes and Consequences of the Elite Revolution. In this special episode, to mark the centenary of the Russian Revolution, Dr. Devlin discusses one of the defining events of the 20th century. Devlin examines the main aspects of the revolution, including the lead-up to the February Revolution, Lenin's return from exile, the October Revolution and its aftermath, the ensuing civil war, and finally, the commemoration of the revolution. Devlin begins by looking at Tsarist Russia and the reasons for its collapse in early 1917. Well, at the start of the 20th century, Tsarist Russia was an autocracy. That's to say it was ruled by one man um, on a principle that essentially treated this vast, backward, multinational empire as though it were his personal estate. Now, that had changed um, before the war. In fact, about 12 years before the revolution broke out, uh, Russia was engulfed in a revolution which involved practically every sector of society, not just the middle classes or the revolutionary intelligentsia or students or the usual suspects, but also peasants, uh, mutinying sailors. Um, So the Tsar, in fact, was very nearly toppled, and he was certainly forced to make concessions in 1905, and he promised to become uh, a constitutional monarch, but in fact failed really to honour that commitment. And the result of that was that really by about 1910, in fact really earlier, uh, Russia was already deeply divided. Deeply divided not only by the strains of modernisation, which made a great gulf between the wealthy and the new industrial classes, industrial workers and middle classes, um, but just general strains of modernisation. This was a society changing very rapidly. Although it was agrarian, overwhelmingly, and most people were peasants, uh, Russia was industrialising rapidly. Uh, It was the fifth largest industrial power in the world by 1914, but it was also the most strike-prone. So there we see radicalism already. Uh, It was a deeply divided society. Therefore, although the Tsar had, in theory, enormous power, he didn't actually have enormous authority. Uh, He hadn't honoured his promises, democratic promises, to deliver a kind of democratic liberal uh, regime, and that alienated the the educated classes, the middle classes, who would normally have been the backbone uh, of the political regime, as they were, for example, in France or Britain at the time. Um, So the empire, or Tsarism, Tsarist Russia, blundered into war in 1914, strangely against the advice of the very conservative interior minister, uh, who advised the Tsar against going to war because he said the peasants want land, the workers want to own the factories, uh, the revolutionaries want revolution, and we have really very few people behind us. Go into war and you risk being swept away. Strange prophecy from a very conservative minister in 1914. And broadly speaking, that's what came to pass. The war uh, was prosecuted incompetently. The Tsarist Russia, uh, the authorities weren't able to manage it properly. Uh, 14 million men approximately were mobilised. 
Um, and it was a bit of a disaster for Russia. They had enormous losses uh, between those who uh, actually died or lost without trace. According to some statistics, Russia lost more men than any other power. Germany had more men killed, but Russia had more men, if you like, unaccounted for. And so you have something like uh, an overall death toll of around 8 million. So by uh, the January, beginning of 1917, the cities are suffering from acute shortages of fuel, more importantly of bread. The factories are working under... Um, grotesquely um, disciplined. It's really very draconian discipline in the factories. Uh, the workers are discontent. There have been more price rises. Um, things had come to such a pass uh, that not only were uh, the upper classes, the middle classes, um, worried about the Tsar's capacity to conduct the war competently, uh, so even were members of the royal family, the imperial family, were even talking about the need perhaps to replace the Tsar. Um, and the generals were very ready to go along with that suggestion when it was made a couple of months into uh, the new year of 1917. Some people say, well, the, the Tsar hasn't collapsed. Certainly within 12 days, the monarchy that had been in place for 300 years was swept aside. Interestingly, it seems to me, February was the popular revolution. The revolution starts on, in the uh, workers' zones of the city, the workers' areas, uh, with bread strikes, bread queues and bread strikes and protests uh, on International Women's Day. And it very rapidly spreads to the factories. Within a couple of days, uh, 200,000 workers are on strike uh, in the city. And this was a city which was the epicenter of the defense industry. Two-thirds of the de defense industry is in Pietrograd. Um, it's also um, characterized by enormous factories. The great, one of the great big defense factories, the Butila factory, is 30,000 men in it, men and women, but principally. And so here you have... Uh, if you like, great strikes, protests, very rapidly engulfing the capital, which is, of course, the nerve center of power uh, in the uh, empire. So uh, we have workers on strikes, and actually within a couple of days, the middle classes join in the strikes and add to the demands for bread, an end to war, and down with monarchy. Another couple of days, the, workers are, uh, the soldiers are mutinying. The Tsar's instincts are simply to use uh, the troops, to suppress the disorders. Uh, but in point of fact, almost immediately they lose control of the capital and uh, the generals and the elites don't allow him use the troops. And in fact, he probably wouldn't have been able to use them successfully. It's within a matter of days, uh, the streets are taken over by demonstrating, protesting soldiers, middle classes, students, uh, factory workers. In actual fact, it takes about four days before any of the parties, including the revolutionary groups, offer any leadership to this, to these political protests. And uh, when they do, they form the Duma, the parliament, uh, the conservative elites in the parliament form what becomes a provisional government, uh, and then you have uh, the focus of the popular revolution becomes a, re a revived uh, Petrograd Soviet. So there you have it. Um, they persuade the generals that the Tsar has to go, the Tsar abdicates, and none of the other members of the royal family are ready to take over. And with that, in a matter of days, uh, Russia becomes a republic. Why didn't this liberal uh, revolution succeed? Now, when the Tsar falls, there's universal uh, euphoria. Happy demonstrations, the prisons are opened, um, the, the police forces disbanded by the new provisional government. Uh, the left-wing socialist parties in the Soviet are ready to support uh, the provisional government. 
And the provisional government, it's assumed uh, by the generals, will control, take over. This will satisfy the street demonstrations. Calm will be restored, order will be restored, and the war will now be uh, pursued successfully. And that is what the provisional government promises to deliver. It announces civic liberties, frees prisoners, it abolishes the uh, Tsarist uh, police force. And I think to those of us looking back on this period, it's a kind of Baghdad moment. Reminds me at least of the Iraq war, uh, when the Americans go in and do away with Saddam's hatred, uh, bureaucracy, police force, etc. What this actually meant for the provisional government was they deprived themselves of the tools of law and order. Uh, They lose control of the army almost at once as well, as uh, the army is allowed by the Pietrograd Soviet form soldiers' councils, which means that the army high command's orders are subject to the agreement of the soldiers who fight. So you have a rather um, powerless, fundamentally, provisional government whose writ doesn't really run, not merely in the streets of the capital, but, of course, beyond in the wider uh, country. Second issue is the popular revolution, which is focused on the famous Pietrograd Soviet, which has nearly 2,000 delegates in it, Um, at least almost immediately has that number of delegates in it. This is where uh, the workers uh, who are active in the factories and factory committees and where the soldiers from the worker, from the uh, front really, from the uh, workers of the soldiers' councils, this is where they come with their demands. The Soviet is actually guided by uh, socialist, the socialists fundamentally, the socialist parties, but not, in fact, by Lenin's Bolsheviks. They're an atypical minority. In the Soviets, um, the leadership is provided by parties, moderate Marxists, the so-called Mensheviks, and by the most popular socialist party in Russia. That's the uh, agrarian socialists, if you like, the socialist revolutionaries. And they believe in pursuing the war. They support the provisional government, which is committed to pursuing the war. And the provisional government's great mistake is to pursue the war because they then confront exactly the same problems that the Tsarist authorities did. And they don't have the means really to pursue it successfully. It puts the country and the capitals under the same strains in regard to provisioning, in regard to fighting the war effectively as the Tsar had. In fact, those difficulties become more acute uh, over time. So essentially the provisional government is made up of men of rather liberal constitution, middle and upper class gentry, liberals, um, some conservatives indeed, uh, and they look west. They want to fight alongside the allies, alongside Britain and France, and they think they have a kind of parliamentary democracy like them. However, they don't actually have a functioning parliament. They postpone elections. They call themselves the provisional government. Uh, And in a sense, they admit with that their own uh, lack of permanency and their own illegitimacy. Uh, So essentially, very soon, the workers and soldiers discover that the problems that had brought them out on the streets in the first place in February remain in place and in fact are exacerbated as the year goes on. Between July and October 1917, prices for for bread, for example, go up by approximately a factor of four, multiplied by a factor of four. So bread becomes acute shortages of bread. The same applies to fuel, trying to keep warm uh, or keep things running. In the factories, there's chaos too, because the workers have demanded and got uh, kind of workers' committees in the factories, and they challenge the power of the factory management and in fact fundamentally challenge the owners. 
The result of that is initially more strikes and disorders, and then uh, come the summer, owners are more inclined just to give up. They decide, oh, well, we close down. So by the end of the autumn, really, by certainly by October, approximately half a million workers have been laid off. What are those workers going to do? What are they? They're revolutionary rabble, of course, ready to take to the streets. Um, more fundamentally, really, uh, some of them are being armed by the end of the summer uh, because the provisional government's power is ebbing away all the time. The provisional government remains committed to the war effort and, in fact, in June launches another offensive on the southeastern front, and that is disastrous. It becomes a rout with losses of about 200,000 men. Uh, from that moment on, really, the provisional government uh, is really living on borrowed time. Within a month, it's challenged from the right by right-wing generals who want to take over and really have a right-wing coup. That is defeated, in point of fact, by striking railroad workers. Uh, the uh, workers in the cities are armed by the garrison. Uh, the sailors, the garrison soldiers, they're all ready to take up arms to defend the revolution. So we have a popular revolution, and only one force offers that any leadership, and that is Lenin's Bolsheviks. Lenin, despite his fame as a revolutionary socialist, isn't, was in fact a nobleman. His father was a member of the service nobility of Russia, um, and he trained initially as a lawyer. Lawyers don't often make, I think, re revolutionaries. Uh, Lenin did, in fact, because his elder brother was involved in a, a revolutionary plot in the 1880s to assassinate the Tsar and was himself hanged for involvement in that. So Lenin also then was converted, if you like, to revolution, not to the form of revolution espoused by his brother, which was agrarian socialism, in fact, uh, but to the new form of revolution, then becoming fashionable in, among Russian left-wing circles, that was Marxism. Lenin, as a young man, was in fact uh, a minority uh, in having a particular interpretation of Marxism, which he adapted to the Russian front, and that was a very voluntaristic form of Marxism. Marxism was seen by many, understood by most contemporary Marxists, I suppose, in the early 20th century, as being a kind of social science, uh, having predictive force. When societies developed, becoming in, in developed industrial societies, the large working classes, then you will inevitably have a socialist revolution. And that's what the Mensheviks in Russia the, believed. They were the moderate socialists. Lenin didn't agree with that. He was, however, before the revolution, a very marginal figure and a very controversial and unpopular figure. Most Marxists did not agree with Lenin who thought we should use all weapons to hasten revolution, and a few a small bunch of revolutionaries can really lead the revolution, make the revolution happen. So he had this voluntaristic notion of revolution. Uh, he was, as I say, a marginal figure until he was brought back to the capital, uh, to Pietrograd, in April 1917 by the Germans, who played or believed that Lenin could foment trouble and destabilize the Russian war effort. And this, in fact, they surpri proved surprisingly uh, correct. Most uh, Russians on the ground thought Lenin a complete hothead when he came back. And that includes uh, most socialists, most radicals of the day. Um, the other socialist parties did not agree with Lenin. They continued to support the provisional government in its commitment to war, a defensive war. Lenin, when he came back, 
um, he corrected indeed his own followers, like Stalin, uh, who in fact had supported the same position as everybody else hitherto. That's to say, let's fight the war to defend the revolution. And Lenin said, no, we need an end to this imperialist war. So Lenin, in fact, supported the original demands of the February Revolution, an end to war, redistribution of the land, a question the provisional government had kicked into the long grass. Uh, so peace, bread, and land. We'll end the war, we'll solve all these problems, and we'll introduce fundamental reform, and especially the issue of land. That was what most of the army, ordinary peasant conscripts wanted. They wanted to get hold of the landlords, uh, the landowning classes, land. They thought it belonged to them. They wanted a social revolution in the countryside. Lenin promised it to them. They wanted an end to war. Lenin promised it to them. Uh, they wanted bread in the cities. And, of course, the workers wanted peace and bread as well. Uh, Lenin was the only person who promised that. And it meant that the Bolshevik party that he headed grew in size and support from approximately 10,000 in March 1917 to an estimate of around 200,000 in October. So they rallied around his famous April thesis. Uh, and that is how he came to, in fact, have broad, quite to be able to head up, if you like, popular sentiment and ultimately, ultimately to be able to topple uh, the uh, provisional government. But the provisional government by the autumn was already discredited. It, it is indeed, has some support, it's true, uh, from the other socialist parties. Um, but do they represent those other socialist parties? The popular feeling on the streets of the capital or of the army? The answer is no, not really. The Bolshevik Revolution had a big impact beyond Russia. So what was the international reaction to the October Revolution? Well, needless to say, when Lenin came to power and immediately sued for peace, uh, the Allies with whom Russia was fighting, were dismayed and alarmed. Russia was an essential part of the war effort, obviously the Eastern Front. Uh, they were already supplying troops, uh, at least munitions, uh, to the Russians. Uh, but essentially what uh, it prompted uh, Lenin's pulling Russia out of war, as he does in the beginning of 1918, was to um, in, incite intervention. So most of the great powers, in fact, ultimately have troops on the ground. Uh, the French, the British, the Japanese, the Americans. And they become a factor uh, in the Russian civil war that soon breaks out. Um, they are there because they actually want initially to, they've been hoping to keep Russia in the war, and then they want to make sure um, that the Germans don't get hold of the supplies they've offered. That, that's one dimension of it. Perhaps more fundamental is, uh, in terms of the long-term politics as they play out in the interwar period, is the fear of the red menace, you know, these complete extremists as they come to power and their conception of revolution, which isn't just a political revolution, it's a social and indeed cultural revolution. Every form of radicalism is going to be practiced in the in early years of Bolshevik takeover in the areas that they actually control. Um, so abroad, of course, to initially these fears are given substance because as uh, former POWs uh, in Russia, those uh, Germans and above all Austrian troops who have been, Habsburg uh, troops who have been 
captured and kept in uh, political captivity in POW camps by the Tsarist authorities and then by the uh, provisional government. As they return to their homes, they come very often carrying in their backpacks radical ideas because they too have been exposed to Bolshevik propaganda carried out in the army. Uh, and we see examples of this quite early on, uh, obviously in uh, Berlin and in Germany early in 1919. Uh, there's also more or less contemporaneously a kind of quasi-Bolshevik revolution in Hungary uh, under Bela Kuhn uh, in 1919. So this seems like the possibility of the spread of a kind of Leninist revolution to the uh, heartland of Europe. This seems, uh, especially in 1918, uh, when the central powers and the old dynasties are toppled, it seems like a real possibility. And that does much to set up the structure of politics, if you like, in the interwar period. Shortly after the revolution, Russia was plunged into a vicious civil war. Why was this the case? Lenin, although he gains support in 1917, although he's the only politician of the day uh, to be in line with the demands of popular revolution, he isn't popular with all parts of Russian opinion. Um, and uh, also he quite quickly loses popular support. So to start off with, one of the first things that makes him quite unpopular is that he proscribes the parties that he sees as belonging to his class enemies, the middle classes. So they're quite quickly disbanded. He sets up his famous secret police, the Cheka, uh, which dispenses very rough justice indeed. Uh, so if you're a member of the middle classes, are of course the former Tsarist officials, or the generals, you're on the other side. Um, and you're d described by the Bolsheviks, seen by them as uh, potential political enemies to be uh, dispatched. Uh, he proclaims a dictatorship, so he, very, he is, governs almost immediately with almost no support. He does not bring into the government uh, the mainstream uh, socialist revolutionaries, who are in fact uh, the most popular party in Russia. The one democratic move Lenin makes almost immediately is to hold elections to the famous Constituent Assembly in November 1918. And that shows that the Bolsheviks have approximately a quarter, 25% of the vote in Russia, uh, whereas the socialist revolutionaries have uh, over 50% of the vote. And the other parties much less. So Lenin is never in a majority. Uh, the socialist revolutionaries are the most popular uh, party, and they're the form of socialism that speaks most to the Russian people. And they, uh, because they're not, they, in fact, when they are told by Lenin, along with the Mensheviks and so on, in the Congress of Soviets, immediately after, uh, or indeed as the Bolsheviks are seizing power in October, they're appalled, but you've done this without consulting us. So they actually stalk out of the Congress and immediately find themselves kind of in quasi-opposition. Now, if they're in opposition almost ab initio, what about the others? As soon as Lenin sues for peace and agrees peace uh, in March 1918, what he agrees to is uh, essentially a, a dramatic defeat, an extraordinary loss of territory. So they lose most of the Ukraine and, and the Baltic states, etc. Um, that is seen as disastrous, and it enables uh, the, some of the generals to mobilize uh, against Lenin. Uh, as, so the civil war is breaking out really from uh, certainly the middle of 1918, and it's really almost everybody else against the Bolsheviks. Um, the weakness of the everybody else is that there's a very broad, it's not even correct to call them a coalition. 
The white generals want a restoration of the monarchy and put the clock back. The socialist revolutionaries want their particular form of socialist revolutionary. The middle classes think, well, perhaps better the generals. Um, and then, of course, you have a peasant revolution that want their form of uh, revolution. There are anarchists. Um, and there, as the country slides into total chaos, you have bands of deserters, uh, you have warlords, uh, you have anarchist bands. And these many players have their own agendas. So revolution means very many different things. And many different players are fighting in the civil war. It's not just the Lenin's Bolsheviks against uh, the monarchist whites. There are many other different forces. And what enables the Bolsheviks ultimately to win is A, their consolidation in the centre, and B, the fact that the coalition against them is very fractured. Uh, and finally, the fact that this most significant military force, which is, of course, the white generals, have a platform that is so deeply uncongenial and unpopular with the peasantry, with workers, etc. A century on from the Russian Revolution, do Russians commemorate the events of 1917? And how has commemoration of the revolution changed over time? Soviets were, in fact, great pioneers of propaganda. And throughout the Civil War years, years of tremendous deprivation, poverty, famine, it was disastrous. The Civil War is much more destructive than any other period, really, uh, hitherto in Russia in terms of its cost in human lives. Nonetheless, they pour money into commemoration. And they quickly pass over the February Revolution, celebrating instead uh, the October Revolution as the popular revolution. What I didn't say talking about that was that, in fact, um, more people were to be injured in the commemoration, uh, the famous commemorations of the October Revolution, uh, than were, uh, in fact, in the course of the takeover, Bolshevik takeover, which was, in fact, a quite quick military operation. Uh, so, in fact, uh, already uh, during the Civil War, they staged great street sort of sans lumière in the French style with playing out the takeover of the Winter Palace on uh, Palace Square uh, and with Reds, you know, sort of the, the popular workers, Kerensky's government, the battleship Aurora, spotlights um, you know, showing where the action is um, and, as I say, staging it, having a revolutionary crowd storming the Winter Palace. That actually, the scenario for this great uh, street spectacle, which was played out in, uh, at night uh, in the capital in Pietrograd, uh, with, as I say, spotlights being deployed um, and uh, thousands of people and thousands of spectators, um, that scenario was taken up in one of the great films that commemorates the revolution and has done so much to shape the memory of revolution, and that was Eisenstein's 1927-8 film, October. Um, because it actually recapitulates that and it ends with this famous scene where you show uh, the, the famous arch that leads into the square of the crowd of revolutionary mob surging across uh, the square, you know, climbing up the famous gates, toppling the double-headed eagle of the Tsars and surging into the Winter Palace to announce popular revolution. So the, the Soviets were very keen to commemorate the revolution as a popular revolution, as the summit of what the people really wanted. Although it was a reinterpretation, of course, of what actually happened uh, in October. But that is how, more or less, the revolution was commemorated. 
In the late Soviet period, of course, we'll remember it uh, as probably those, some people at least will remember it uh, as streams of tanks and weaponry rolling through Red Square while the sclerotic elderly Soviet leadership reviewed the parade. Um, but, and that's how Revolution Day was commemorated. And it was a public holiday right up until uh, the end of the Soviet regime. Under Yeltsin, it became chaotic, and then it was replaced by uh, the 4th of November, which is now the day of, I think it's called, National Reconciliation. Uh, so it's kind of dropped out of public consciousness. And how the centenary will be remembered uh, is an interesting question, because, of course, Mr. Putin doesn't really like popular revolutions, as we know from his attitude to uh, revolution in Kiev, revolution in Georgia, and the other colour revolutions. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. You can find hundreds of episodes on our website at historyhub.ie.